0: So, uh, let's take our Bibles, turn in them to the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, as we continue on. We'll finish the chapter today, verses 18 through 31, uh, in a message that I have entitled, God Sees You. And so with that, why don't we stand? Let's stand before the Lord and uh, go before the Lord and prayer. This will help you stretch it out a little bit. Come on, guys. You guys are all acting like, oh, really? Do I have? Come on, Rick. Come, Come on. Unless you've... If you've got a knee injury or something, you're good to stay down. But the rest of us, let's stand. God is worthy of our honor. Amen. Amen. So, Father God, I just, we honor you today. We stand in, in awe and humble our hearts before you today. And we just thank you for your word and your faithfulness. And we pray, God, that you give us ears to hear you. And not only that we have ears to hear, but with that, that we respond appropriately to you. Lord, those of us who know you, may we, uh, uh, Lord, walk away strengthened in you, edified. God, those of us who maybe don't, that we, that, uh, Lord, you would draw people to know you today in a personal way. We thank you for the promise of your word, and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Everybody say, all right, go ahead and plop down there. Easier to get down than get up, isn't it? Isaiah chapter 40. Guys, Isaiah 40 insists that we get a grip on the greatness of God. That we take time to behold him, to meditate upon him, to think about him, to consider well his omnipotent, unmatched power, his omniscient, unrivaled wisdom. Yet he's rich in mercy. He leads and feeds the sheep of his hand tenderly. He does not despise the weak, but he draws us near to his heart, whereby he comforts us gently and lovingly. Look back. You're in Isaiah 40. Look back to verse... 13, verse 13, it says, who uh, has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance, who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or has, or As his counselor has taught him, with whom did he take counsel and who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Well, you get the idea, don't you? There's no one equal to our God. There is none like him. There are none beside him. Guys, he didn't consult with me when he created the heavens and the earth. He didn't seek my advice when it came to establishing the boundaries of the sea or when he decided to suspend the earth on nothing. He didn't ask my counsel when it came to the course of divine intervention into the affairs of man, solving the sin dilemma and creating a way by which we might be saved. I've never directed the spirit of the Lord. Oh, I've tried. We've spoke about that. But never have I counseled him, have I taught him, instructed him, shown him the path of justice. That is, this is the right thing to do in this given situation. I've never imparted knowledge unto God. I've never shown him the way of understanding. Oh, how it should well up in our hearts. Guys, does it really surprise you? Is it a shock that it would ring out through the writings of the Apostle Paul? The awe, the wonder of it all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become His counselor? Ladies and gentlemen, if this truly took root in our heart, if it got a proper grip on us, we could not stop ourselves from falling on our faces and worshiping God with all that we are. All the military might of every nation is as nothing before Him. They are counted by Him as less than nothing and worthless. Now look at verse 18. Uh, to whom will you liken God or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image, the goldsmith overspreads it with gold and the silversmith casts silver chains. Uh, Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot and he seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare the carved image that will not totter. And so, guys, after this extensive effort to help us understand the might and the majesty as well as the tender mercy of our God, Isaiah says, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to Him? Family, I want you to be grounded in the fact that as it pertains to our knowledge of God, it's not very much. you understand that? We just don't know a whole lot about God. And what we do know about Him is limited to what He's chosen to reveal of Himself to us through His Word. And I am of the persuasion that of all that there is to know about Him, He hasn't told us very much. In fact, I believe that eternity may not be enough time, counterintuitive statement, I know, eternity may not be enough time to learn all that there is to know of our God. And truth be told of what God has revealed, we can't even comprehend very much of that. I mean, think it through. Do you understand how God can be all places at one time? How he can know every detail of everything that's going on and know the thoughts in your mind? Do you understand how that there are three distinct personalities, yet the Bible is clear that there's only one God? How does that work? We just don't know. And with these things serving as a foundation, now Isaiah brings before us the absurdity of idolatry, trying to form or fashion a likeness of your God that you might bow before it or render worship to it. The reality, however, is that idols are representations that have been crafted or created by man. And regardless of how ornate, how incredible the craftsmanship Uh, how valuable the materials, you cannot capture the essence of God. He says, what are you going to do? Get a a workman to mold it? A a goldsmith to overlay it with gold? Is that how you're going to represent God? Do you honestly think that you're going to capture the worthiness of, the holiness, the glory and wonder of who God is through the craft of some man's hands. That's what the pagan nations around them were doing. Ladies and gentlemen, it's what many pagan nations in the world still do to this day. And yet we read in the book of Exodus, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. Think about that. It is impossible to compare our God to the gods of the nations. To try and capture His image, His essence through something man is formed or fashioned. But people do this. Even to this day, they will bow before a carved or molded image of Jesus there upon the cross. Or, you know, people will think that this relic, some kind of relic contains power. Yet, when the Apostle Paul was addressing the... Men of Athens at the Areopagus, he said, We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. There is nothing, believe you me, that man can conceive or create that would in any way be able to capture the glory and the majesty of God. Amen? Amen. It's interesting, isn't it? The Bible teaches that God has created man in his likeness, after his image. But then man turns around, forsakes the true and living God, and decides to fashion and form a God after his own image, and after his own likeness. I mean, you know, you have eyes, you have ears, you have a nose, you have a mouth, you have hands, you have feet. And so, There man is, he's forming, he's fashioning his God and he gives him eyes and he gives him ears and he gives him nose and a mouth and hands and feet. But it goes beyond that. Man has sinful appetites. Therefore, conveniently enough, the gods of men revel and delight, in fact, are worshipped through sinful activity. And so you have all these pagan gods who approve of every kind of sin that man can fathom because man needs approval to justify his actions. And therefore he fashions a God who approves of, is worshipped through his perversion, his wickedness, his greediness, his debauchery or his lewdness. But the folly... The foolishness of idolatry. Do me a favor. Leave the book of Isaiah chapter 40. Turn to the left in your Bible to Psalm 115. You're going back toward the beginning. Just oh, somewhere between about an eighth of an inch or so. All right. Psalm 115. Are you there? Come on, somebody. Okay, I got one. No. We wait for you. Rick is there. Mark, are you there? Trevor, you there? Good to go? Chris? I'm calling you out, Terry. Come on. I'm on it. All right, Psalm 115. Uh, check it out. Oh, let's see here. Now, what have I done? <laughs> I may have wrote down the wrong one. Where's it at, guys? Verse 4. There they are. Thank you, Justin. I wrote down the this, this song. Okay, because I wanted to start in verse 1. So let's just start in verse 1. Uh, verse 4 is what I was looking for, but verse 1 is where I'm starting. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name be the glory, because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? But our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. And those, check it out, who make them are like them and so is everyone who trusts in them. And so David, like Isaiah, exposing the foolishness of worshipping anything or anyone short of the true and living God. And he speaks here of a truth that the word of God expresses again and again and that is this, you and me we become like our God. Now we don't become God, but we become like God. And this is One reason why it's so critical that we worship the true God. If not, your God, lowercase g, may have eyes, but it can't see. It may have ears, it can't hear. It it may have a mouth, it can't speak. Hands, it can't handle And those who worship them, David says, are like them. In other words, blind to the things of God, deaf to the voice of God, unable to walk with God or work for God. You get the idea. Now, of course, on the plus side is that if you worship the true God, rather than some false God of your own imagination, you become like Him. You have a heart for holiness For righteousness, you'll be merciful and gracious and full of love and compassion. You'll speak the truth. You'll stand firm for what's right. You'll be an individual of integrity who is slow to anger and who is quick to forgive. Now, of course, none of these things happen overnight. Amen. Who can testify to that? None of these things happen overnight. And they develop at different rates in our lives because we're different people with different areas that need greater attention. But this is why it's so important that our heart is set on the Lord, that we have no other gods before Him and that we worship Him and Him only shall we serve. Amen. Amen. Perhaps you're thinking, that's no problem, Pastor. I've never in my life bowed before an idol. (laughs) And in all honesty, little trinkets like that kind of creep me out. Uh, Well, listen. This does not simply apply to little trinkets of gold or, or stone or wood in the fashion of some being, you see. We all worship all kinds of things. Humanity worships all kinds of things. People bow before or worship money. Or they worship power, or they worship fame, or they worship sex, or they bow at the altar of substance abuse. If you don't humble yourself and bow before the true and living God, then you are forced to bow before some kind of idol or object of worship that's false, that's unworthy of honor and power and blessing and worship and praise. You see, man is compelled to worship. It is, it is written into the fabric of who we are. It's not a question of if we will worship, only who or what we will worship. How many of you, quick show of hands, time for transparency, how many of you can recall or remember the account of Jacob all the way back in your Old Testament and when he went to work all that time for Laban? Do you remember that? That's a fair amount of you. Jacob went to work for Laban. And you remember, Laban was always ripping him off one way or another. He was always trying. It's like, you you know what Jacob means. We'll talk about this next week, I think. Uh, But Jacob basically means con man, heel snatcher, deceiver. and uh, Jacob lived up to his name. But then he kind of met his match with Laban. And Laban was always deceiving him, ripping him off, taking advantage of him. And it finally came to pass after years and years. Now, Jacob had married both of Laban's daughters. You remember, even that was the de- deception. Like, he thought he was going to marry Rachel. And, 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 and Laban bamboozled him and gave him Leah. And he was like, what the what? You know? And he, well, you got to work for me seven more years. And you can have, you know, okay. you know, and, so, and just on and on it went. And finally, Jacob had had enough, and he decided to pack up his family and leave. Now, of course, Laban, when he caught wind of what had happened, he took off and pursued him. Eventually, he overtook him. But do you remember when he caught up to him, and he began to rail on Jacob? And one of his chief complaints was that he accused Jacob, listen to this, of stealing his gods. Now, Rachel had, but Jacob didn't know that. But what I'm trying to communicate to you is I want you to think about how absurd that sounds. What kind of God can be stolen? I don't know. Some of you may have that kind of God here today. You might leave the church and your God has been stolen right off the lot. You know? Wouldn't be the first time we've actually had a car stolen off the lot here. Not that the fella not that it was the fella 's god it wasn 't a very nice vehicle, so I doubt that it was. So anything 's possible, but I digress. But I want you to notice that here Isaiah even gives these gods various classes. He says, you know if you 're rich, if you 're an individual of means, then uh, you know you have an expensive god it's formed it's fashioned it 's overlaid with gold and all the finest. If you're poor, you're going through a rough patch financially, well, you, you got to get a little bit cheaper, God. You know, you, gotta, you go out into the woods, you try to find at least a good piece of, of timber. You know, you don't want something that's going to rot, so you grab a piece of cedar. I mean, who wants a rotting God? And so uh, you, you try to find some wood that's going to have a little bit of substance to it and all. And Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Right? I mean, the absurdity of idolatry. Listen to me, if you have to form or fashion your God, it's no God. If it depends on you to care for it, then you cannot depend on it to care for you. Now look at verse 21. We're back in Isaiah chapter 40. He says, Have you not known... Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless Scarcely shall they be planted, scarcely shall they be sown, scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth. When he will blow on them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes. Oh, come on, somebody. Lift up your Underline that on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their hosts by number. He calls them all by name. By the greatness of His might and the strength of His power, not one is missing. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to see that Isaiah hits the same question in four different angles, from four different angles, in verse 21 alone. A modern colloquialism, there's your three dollar word of the day, or uh, are you impressed? Wow. Uh, how about this one? Your, our modern vernacular. Oh, come on now. I'm just playing with you guys. We, we would say it like this. Hello? Is anyone home? I mean, how can you not know these things? He is chiding them for losing sight of what he considers to be basic, common knowledge. He's essentially saying, I can't believe that you don't know this. Open your eyes, it's so plain, it's so obvious the creativity, the enormity, the complexity, the variety, and the majesty of creation. It screams out, bearing witness to a marvelous creator. David said the same thing in Psalm 19. He said, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Paul the Apostle picked up on this principle. And he put it this way because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The glory of creation testifies to the greatness of the Creator. You understand? He's not part of the creation, like gold or silver or, you know, he's in the trees and he's here and he's there and all of that. No, he's not a part of creation. He's beyond it. He sets above it. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain. And family, we have to admit, don't we? I mean, Isaiah's argument here, his amazement here is well-placed. I mean, it's difficult to fathom how anyone can look at the glory, the design, so evident in creation and fail to understand that there must be a great and glorious designer behind it all. It just, it always blows my mind how there can be such a disconnect in people's minds when it comes to this Simple principle, guys. There's nothing. I I challenge you to think of something. There is nothing. No vehicle. No article of clothing. No house or home you live in. No little uh, trinket. No electronic device. Not even a simple pair of shoes. There is nothing that does not testify of design, which necessitates a designer, does it not? I mean, how simple is a shirt? I notice most y'all wearing shirt today. glad, good for you, but every single shirt, you know, not one shirt anywhere on the planet of the billions and billions of shirts just happened to evolve out of some kind of material somewhere, someone stumbled upon it, no, every shirt, billions of shirts was carefully, some more than others, crafted and designed. But somehow, people genuinely believe that something as infinitely more complex as the human body, the way the eye works, the nervous system, the reproductive system, the cardiovascular system, the digestive system, all the muscles, the sinews, your skeletal system, every joint and tendon, and all of these things just happened by random chance, and we got here through a process of natural selection. Is that true for your phone? I mean, is that true for this pulpit or the book that you hold in your hands? Maybe you got a cup of coffee or a bottle of water. Did that just happen to kind of... No, it's not true for your car, your computer, your clothes, or anything you can think of. Evidently, it's only true for the single most complex thing on the planet, living beings. Come on. Now, there are no transitional forms, and so... It's not happening today. Evidently, everything eventually just contented themselves as a species and decided, I guess, being a fish is fine now. Or a bird or whatever. Do you see how ludicrous this is? But if you reject the truth, let me ask you this. If you reject the truth, what choice do you have but to accept a lie? And the truth is that this universe and every aspect of it did not evolve. It was carefully, meticulously, and intentionally, might I add, lovingly created by our Creator. Guys, this is biblical doctrine. And if you don't believe it, you don't believe your Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John said it this way, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Look at this. All things were, what? Made through Him, and without Him, how much? Nothing was made that was made. Paul put it this way, for by Him, that is Christ, how many things? Come on now, how many? All things were, what? created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, how many things? All things were created through Him and for Him. And He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. So it's not only inanimate creation that God resides over, He's over every power of man on the earth. You know, when someone is in power, there they are, it's a king or a president or a governor or a ruler, whatever the case it's easy for them to be, we say, full of themselves, right? To think more highly of themselves than they ought. Isaiah says they're nothing before God. He blows on them, they wither away. Let me ask you another question. Of all the judges that have ever lived, all the kings, all the princes, every ruler that's ever been in power, how many can you name? I mean, what have we had, 46 presidents in our nation? I wonder how many of those you can name. I can't name them all. God raises a man up and sets a man down. They're they're nothing apart from His allowance. By the way, we should see that God is warning us here not to place too much stock in political leaders, okay? Uh, judges, um, Supreme Court nominees, as if your hope will be realized in this person or in that person. Let me tell you, it's not going to happen. Look, I'm not a fan of our current administration, but it doesn't matter who you vote in you are not going to fix everything, okay? There's no perfect politician. Things will falter and flounder until Jesus is ruling and reigning over all the earth. And now, with regard to verse 26, we could spend time here, but we did in our previous section of Scripture. Remember about the vastness of the heavens, the countless billions upon billions of stars, how that God not only knows the exact number of them, but He actually has a name for each and every one of them. That's incredible. There's something else we can't comprehend about God. And believe me when I tell you that if God knows the name of each and every star, listen to me, He knows your name too. God knows who you are. In fact, in John chapter 10, Jesus said that he knows his sheep and he calls them by name and he leads them out. And the same God, I want you to write it down, if, you, if you're a person who is, who is hurting, who is broken, the same God who numbers and names the stars, Psalm 147 verse 4, can help you and heal your broken heart. Psalm 147 verse 3. The question is, To what or to whom are you going to turn for help in your time of need? When you have a problem, when you are in trouble, to whom or to what do you run? People run to all kinds of things. People find pathways of escape so they don't have to face reality. And people will escape into movies. They'll escape into Games or books, some kind of entertainment, they party, they drown themselves, you know, in alcohol, or perhaps as it pertains to advice, who do you look to? It's funny, isn't it, how we treat things like that? When we're looking for advice, uh, you know, this will be a tell. This will be a, a personal tell for you to know where your head, where your heart is before the Lord. You know, when you need advice, think about who you go to and why you go to that person. There you are, God forbid, this is not you, I pray, but you know, you, you're, you're, you're wanting, you're, you're looking for a divorce because you just, you just are unsatisfied with your spouse. You're frustrated with your relationship. Well, you probably then won't go to someone who will share with you the truth of God's Word. You'll find someone who will tell you what you well. You know, God wants you to be happy and and they'll tell you everything that you want to hear and you'll say, I knew it. That's what I thought too. Guys, I know people that are, you know, into philosophy and they're always quoting to me some, what they consider to be some deep-seated perspective on life and living. But it always seems to come from some secular source. Why not go to the wisdom of the Word of God? I don't understand. Why place your trust in the words of some frail, finite, human like yourself when you could trust the word of the omnipotent, omniscient, eternal creator? Why settle for less? Now look at verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim passed over by my God. Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary, his understanding is unsearchable. Are you following the flow here? After all this time spent establishing the greatness and the glory of God, now he applies it so that we understand that God is not removed from His creation in the sense that He's uncaring or inconsiderate, but rather, God sees you. And He desires to impart hope and help to you. He says, why do you say? Why speak in this way? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God. What's the take home here? There is no detail of your life that is hidden from God and no part of your life that is neglected by God. How common it is for people to think that God doesn't see them. That they've been, well our words are, passed over by Him. That is, they think they're getting away with their sin. Man tends to interpret the patience of God for the approval of God. Or worse yet, the ignorance of God. Either God doesn't know or God doesn't care. It's interesting, when you read through the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3, it might be a little homework assignment for you later, there's a couple of things that tend to stand out outside of the individual details surrounding each church. One is that Jesus says to each of them, I know. Okay? The idea being, I know the good, I know the bad, I know the ugly of your life. I know that this is what it looks like outwardly, but this is what's going on in reality. He says, I know. No, the Lord knows the secret sins, the hidden shame of our lives. The next thing he says to every church is this, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, the idea is I see specifically what's happening in your life. Now you need to hear me and respond appropriately in repentance, okay? Don't mistake the patience of God for the approval or the ignorance of God. He is aware of the details, the otherwise hidden aspects of our lives. Now, you can come here, I can show up here, and no one is the wiser pertaining to, to the struggles that are in our midst, be it with drinking, be it with pornography, the way we speak or talk, when we're in our home's privacy. But listen, indeed the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day, the darkness and the light are both alike to you. Simply put, there's nowhere we can hide from the sight of God. We spoke a few minutes ago of the things that people turn to for escape. Do you realize that over 30% of all the data that's transferred across the internet is pornography? Worldwide, the porn industry generates over $100 billion annually. That is more than the MLB, the NBA, and the NFL combined. Now that tells me that it's more than probable that there are those here today who have problems with this vice. Yet God is merciful, and He gives us room to repent. But people will interpret God's patience for God's approval. He must be okay with it. Or maybe He's not aware of it. on the other side of the coin, we can perhaps think that God's You know, my way is hidden from the Lord. It's not so. Or perhaps this isn't you at all. You're thinking not that your way is hidden from the Lord. You're leaning on this next one. My just claim is passed over by my God. There you are and you're hurting and you've been done wrong, but you've done nothing wrong. And you feel like God has somehow overlooked you or forgotten you. Somehow we've managed to believe in the infinite power of God and at the same time feel like He's unable to meet our personal needs. You know what I'm talking about? But everything that Isaiah has been preaching and proclaiming demonstrates the meticulous care of God's control, not the absence of it. He never faints, He doesn't grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Now look, let's look at these last few verses. Verse 29, he gives power to the weak and to those who have no might he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Somebody say, Amen. If these words are not underlined in your Bible, you need to make it so. God is not limited in time, energy, or understanding. And since God, and we're not far from finished, guys, hold on with me. But since God never grows weary, He can give strength to any and to all as much as needed moment by moment, and He'll never run out. Isn't that good news? I mean, I want you to think of it like this. Now, I can give you money, but not much. And then I'm totally depleted. God isn't like that. He has an unending storehouse of strength. He can give and give and give and never grow weary. But, now guys, this part's important. He has chosen to limit the imparting of his strength to a specific demographic. Did you notice that? You have to, let's just say, qualify to share in God's strength and power. And it's not through athletic prowess. It is not through academic achievement. It is not through business accomplishment. If you, listen to me, are self-sufficient, you'll receive no help from God. God gives power, are you ready? To the weak. And to those who have no might he increases strength. And this is just where you write it down so you can read it later. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10. Abby, if you want to make your way up here, we're going to close here in just a second. To trust in natural ability will only result in failure. He says, even the youth shall faint and be weary, the young men shall utterly fall or fail, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew, that's an important word, shall renew their strength. This word renew speaks of an exchange. Uh, Think about taking off one garment, an old garment, and putting on another one. We swap our weakness for his power, our lack for his strength. Maybe he gave you strength yesterday, it's not sufficient for today. You renew your strength day by day. And let me say this to wait upon the Lord is not passivity, sitting idly as though there you are, you're waiting at the bus stop. No, I want you to think of like a top tier restaurant. I've never been to one. I've been to like, I don't know if Emerald Lagasse counts as one. I went to one of his restaurants one time when I was in New Orleans because he was so famous on TV that time. Remember that? Bam! And all of that. He was always kicking things up a notch. And so there was a big emerald E, and I was like, ooh, let's try that. So that's as close as I've ever gotten. But the wait staff, when you're at a top-tier type place, the wait staff literally, and not just one of them, oftentimes it's two or three or four of them, depending on the size of your table, are literally hovering just beyond your table. And, they, you know, you take a sip, bam, they're there, they're filling up your cup. They notice a few crumbs. In my case, a lot of crumbs hitting the table. Whew, they swoop over. They pick up the plate. They scrape off the crumbs. They set your plate back down. I mean, it's like they are—they see a need. They meet a need. They're waiting upon you. They are active. They are attentive to you. Imagine never needing to express a need in a church bulletin. You know. Never having to send out a memo from the children's ministry or notification on your church app uh, because everyone that goes to Calvary Chapel Joplin is waiting on the Lord. They're, They're serving Him through serving one another in love. Now, I'm not suggesting the church building is the only place that you can wait on the Lord, but you guys understand what I'm saying. We're here, let's serve the Lord. In serving one another. Now, guys, I realize some people are in a place. There you are. You need to heal. You need to grow. You need to root in a little bit. You need to get acclimated to the environment. That's, but most of us, okay? Most of us should be about serving one another in the name of Jesus Christ, edifying one another, and glorifying God, waiting on the Lord. And that's, it's as we do these things... Serve the Lord, whether it's here, whether it's at work, whether it's at home. That He increases our strength. Maybe you've been feeling a little depleted in the old spiritual strength department. Let me ask you a question. How have you been waiting on the Lord? That's when He increases. That's as He renews our strength. That we might be about our master's business. Running the race to win. And finishing well. Amen. So let's bow our hearts. Father, what, a, what an incredible passage that you've brought us to today. And Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. What precious promises we have in your word. And we thank you that far from being disinterested or removed from us, that you care for, that you add strength to us, Lord. I don't know of anyone here, who would say, oh, I'm, I'm fine by myself. I'm plenty strong on my own. God, we need You. Our sufficiency is of You. And Your grace is sufficient to save us, to sustain us. And so we give You praise. And guys, while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, maybe you're in that place today where you need... Maybe you don't need the strengthening grace of God because you're not even there yet. You need the saving grace of God to come flooding into your life because you are without hope being without God in the world. Well, I want you to know that God loves you that Christ died for you. He paid the penalty of your sin out of His great love for you. So I'm encouraging you to turn from your sin and trust in Him and be saved from this wicked and perverse generation. And so if that's you, if your heart is turning toward Him, believing in Him, well, I want to pray for you. So if you just show me who you are, maybe everybody here knows the Lord, that's cool, but maybe you've come here today and something is resonating in you in a little bit different way. You're like, man, I think I've known about God. I don't think I've known Him. And I'm not sure that I've ever been saved by Him. Well, I want, You're the one I'm talking to. I want to pray for you. If that's you, would you show me who you are? Just lift your hand. And if I see your hand, I'll say so and you can put it back down. But I want to give you a second. God bless you. I see you. Anyone else? Today is a day of salvation. The Bible says we don't put it off. There's a sense of urgency about the gospel. If you'll hear His voice, don't harden your heart. Anyone else I can pray for? In that capacity specifically. God bless you too. God bless you too. I appreciate that. Well, Father God, we're just so grateful that you love us and that you came to seek and to save us. And so to that end, Lord, we just humble our heart before you. God, I lift these precious individuals up to you. And, And listen, I don't know exactly what's happening in your heart, but I'm going to tell you the Bible says that all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But if we'll confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And a confession doesn't just mean, yes, I did it. It means I'm coming in agreement with you, God, concerning the nature of it. It is sin before you. And I see it for what it is. So just come to Him and just tell Him, just say, Lord Jesus, I, I'm a sinner. I have sinned. And I fall so short your glory but right here and right now I'm asking you to forgive me of my sin Lord that you would take up residence in my heart and in my life I believe on you Lord Jesus fill me with your Holy Spirit wash me clean And thank you for putting my name in your book of life. Now help me to live for you all the days of my life until I see you face to face.